Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, we discuss the topic of precision medicine with Dr. David Fagenbaum, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Translational Medicine, and Human Genetics at the University of Pennsylvania, and author of the book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action, and Francesca McBride, Director of Regulatory Compliance at Jacobs. David and Francesca, thank you both so much for joining me today to talk about precision medicine. Sounds very futuristic. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really excited to learn more about about where this is going. Um, and and David, also you, you were very kind to uh, to share your book that you wrote, Chasing My Cure, and a very fascinating. It, you know, imparts uh, detective story and romance and sports story and medical story. I mean, it's just a little something for everybody. So a really great book and highly recommend that. But uh, I want to thank you both for uh, joining me today. To start us off, Francesca, I want to kind of unpack this term precision medicine. What is precision medicine? What does that mean exactly? And is it the same as personalized medicine? Certainly the terms, both precision medicine and personalized medicine, you know, as they developed, whatever, more or less, you know, were applying to the same definition, but there is certainly some differences. Precision medicine is basically it's an emerging approach for disease treatment and prevention. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it takes into account like the individual variability of the genes of each individual person, you know, the, the genes in our body and relative to the disease. Traditional medical therapies didn't always work the same for every person. And more work is now being done in genomic DNA or molecular testing so that they can establish those um, genetic profiles for the different patients. And then this genetic profile is able to be used to customize healthcare with decisions and treatments that are specifically tailored to each individual. And precision medicine has also been referred to at times, as I said, as personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. And generally personalized medicine was, um, has been referred to as tailoring of um, medical treatment to individual characteristics for each patient. And then ultimately leading to what that clinical treatment would be. And, and sometimes it was, you know, referred to as a trial and error approach to finding that right drug for the right patient at the right time. Uh, but again, now there's a much greater use of electronic health records, genetic testing, and big data analytics and supercomputing to be able to make it far more precise than what was being done before relative to the treatments. So if I kind of understand maybe, you know, in a, in a simple way, you know, personalized medicine is kind of like looking at the person, maybe somewhat from a, and this is going to be kind of a, a rough analogy, but looking at a person kind of from a macro level, you know, for the specificity of them as an individual, but the macro level, and then whereas precision medicine gets down into the micro level where it's, it's more targeted. It's not just, this is what they need, but this is how we can apply it in a way that's very targeted, does the least amount of damage and and does the most amount of efficacy. Is that kind of a fair way to kind of sum that up? I would think so. And it's, you know, and a big part of that is because of the different data that they're now looking at, 
mm-hmm. is much greater than what they were appearing to look at, you know, previously with um, some of the d- different diseases, mm-hmm. especially because of the genetic influence, you know, and knowledge that they're able to get. Mm-hmm. So now, David, let me ask you, and again, this is going to be kind of in layman's terms or, or to explain in layman's terms, you know, some of the diagnostic tools and targeted therapies that are used in precision medicine. Well, first off, Paul, thanks so much for having me uh, on your podcast. It's it's great to be uh, on the show with you. So in terms of tools for precision medicine, just as you summarized, um, in precision medicine, basically you're using data like omic data, whether it's genomic or proteomic data to inform how you're going to treat someone. You're saying, I'm not just going to treat you with this drug because you have diabetes. I'm going to treat you with this drug because you have diabetes and you have a genetic mutation that makes this drug more likely to work than that drug. And so in order to figure that out, the tools you use are going to be things like genetic sequencing of your DNA. So to understand what's the sequence of your 2 billion base pairs, and and does that sequence suggest that one drug might work better than another? It might be sequencing of tumor or tissue of interest. So rather than just looking at your genome that you were born with, looking to see if maybe there were genetic changes within your cancer or within some tissue in your body that are actually different from the rest of your genes that could suggest that one drug is going to work better than another. There's also something called proteomics where you're not just, and so genomics is where you look at the genes, but you can also measure the levels of proteins or RNA in the body that'll suggest that maybe one drug will work better than another. So the new technology um, that, that was being discussed earlier enables us to understand what's happening at a molecular level in a body to guide whether you're going to treat someone one way or another. But there's also really simple things too. You can do things like uh, staining for uh, things like uh, signaling pathways with immunohistochemistry, which is a really old approach to also be able to personalize treatment one way or another. So, and that, that, that leads me to this next question that I have for Francesca. And it's kind of like, how do you how do you kind of unpeel this this onion, you know, like uh, in terms of like getting that data, right? Like, I mean, it's a, you know, David, you mentioned like staining and I'm sure there's like chemical reactions and stuff and like the presence of certain proteins or whatever may like influence a, a certain chemical reaction that the, the lack of that protein wouldn't or something. But, you know, Francesca, how how is this like health and disease data collected? What are some of the ways it's collected and used to generate, you know, precision medical treatments? Well, certainly, you know, through both the research where they're starting with necessarily doing, you know, and giving the treatments to the patients, but they're starting to collect the data to better understand why the individuals or patients are having, based from genetics and maybe their lifestyles and things like that, what has caused this in from their genes to be that way. And so they're doing a lot more data collection for this. And, and that's one of the things that I've seen is one of the biggest influences relative to precision medicine in terms of the ability for it to grow and advance is around that data collection and the sharing of the data. And so there's some apps that are now you can put, you know, locally, I don't know whether it's on the telephone or something like that, so that patients can give information via that way to um, individuals who are collecting. So that's one way that they're collecting even more data than they would have if, you know, the patient wasn't directly there for that. And then obviously investigation, you know, doing different studies to look at the genomic effect, 
um, of these, but they're literally taking in a much broader type of information for some of this in, in terms of things from what is, you know, your health history for yourself or maybe your family, depending on what, you know, the disease is, what's your lifestyle, what are your diet that you might have. And then at the same time, you know, the things like the gen genome sequences and microbiome composition and just these different things that they're, they're looking at. And, um, and, and this data in itself is coming from different sources of information. Mm -hmm. And then I, I'm assuming they cross-reference and, you know, and they look at that and then probably also like probably have some aggregate data from like other folks who are like in similar life circumstances or share similar traits. Well, that's one. I think uh, one of the big things is how they get this information into a database and then obviously, because of the type of data being a personalized data, you know, there, there's a level of protection that has to be, you know, from a security standpoint for that data. But at the same time, then being able to share that, you know, in the, the medical community for those people that are you know, working and doing, you know, the disease treatment and trying to find those specialty treatments. Mm. Now, David, you, I think you kind of alluded to this just a little earlier, and I, I want to I want to dive into this a little bit more, but can we talk about and can you describe precision oncology, you know, and, and what are some of the ways it differs from traditional cancer treatments? You know, what are its benefits and how might it serve to improve patient care? Sure. So um, one thing to think about when you think about precision oncology and just cancer in general um, is that uh, there's often a sense that cancer appears or occurs in the body, but really cancer is just what happens when normal cells that are in your body doing normal things acquire mutations. And so those cells have different genetic sequences than other cells in your body. And when those cells have acquired enough bad mutations in the wrong places, you now have cancer. So it's this transition from healthy cells that might be in your kidney or your heart, your lungs, your brain, wherever it may be, those cells acquiring genetic changes that make them become cancer cells. Mm -hmm. So what you can then back into is say, okay, well, if they were healthy and now they're cancerous cells, you can say, what were the changes that occurred in that cancer, those genetic changes that made it become cancer in the first place? Mm -hmm. So you can actually do genetic sequencing of the cancer and then do genetic sequencing of other tissue in your body to figure out what were those genetic changes that made that those normal cells become cancer cells. And then you can ask the question, are there drugs that are already FDA approved that can target those specific mutations that that tumor in your body actually has? It's, it's pretty incredible. Unfortunately, we don't have drugs that can target every possible mutation, but we do have drugs that can target some of the most common mutations that occur in cancers. And so if you do genetic sequencing of the tumor, you can figure out what were the genetic changes that led that cancer to become a cancer. Mm -hmm. And then you can ask the question, is there a drug that's already approved that can hit that particular genetic change? Even if it wasn't made for, let's say you have lung cancer, even if the drug wasn't made for lung cancer, mm -hmm. if you figure out that your lung cancer has an ALK mutation in it that's really causing the problem here, you can try an ALK inhibitor that may have been developed for another cancer. And in many cases, these drugs are effective. And so precision oncology is to say, what's the genetic change that has occurred? And then what drugs are already approved that can hit that thing? And let's see if that drug actually works, whether or not that drug was made for your form of cancer or something else. Hmm. Now, you know, you and you detail this in your book, you know, Chasing My Cure, but can you share with our audience, you know, a little bit about your own personal journey? Uh, you know, you had a near fatal disease or you have a near fatal disease. 
you know, and how, how did you use precision medicine to find a health affirming way forward with your own life? Sure. Yeah. I went from being a healthy third year medical student. I was at the University of Pennsylvania where I wanted to treat cancer patients in memory of my mom. She died from cancer just a few years before to being critically ill in the intensive care unit. I spent, as, as you know, from my book, I spent almost six months hospitalized in critical condition, um, nearly dying three times during that period. I even had my last rites read to me because the doctors were sure that I wasn't going to survive. And unfortunately, uh, or I guess, fortunately, the diagnosis was made of idiopathic multicentric calcium disease, which is a rare immune system disorder that really sits at the intersection of oncology and autoimmunity. Um, but the unfortunate thing is that I continued to have relapse after relapse. Um, after my, my fourth time that I almost died from this disease, I created a foundation um, called the Calcium Disease Collaborative Network. And I started conducting research to try to figure out what was going wrong in my particular disease. So the medical community didn't understand what was causing idiopathic multicenter calcium disease. That's why the, the word idiopathic is at the beginning of it. We don't know what causes it, but I decided to do research into my own cells, my immune cells, my lymph node, my blood to figure out what was maybe going wrong. And I figured out that a particular communication line in my immune system called the mTOR pathway that's important for everyone's immune system turned out to be highly activated in my case. And so I asked the question, are there drugs that are already approved? I don't care what it was approved for, but are they approved for something that can inhibit mTOR, this particular communication line? And I found that there is a drug that's been around for about 40 years. It was made for kidney transplantation and it's a really good mTOR inhibitor. Mm -hmm. And so I shared the data with my doctors and, I, and in the absence of any other options and the fact that I was likely going to die very soon, we decided to start treating me with this mTOR inhibitor. And it's now been over eight and a half years that I've been in remission on this drug. I mean, I almost died five times in a three-year period, and now it's eight and a half years in remission on this drug. And so what I just described is, is what we call drug repurposing, but really it's, it's precision medicine where we figured out what was exactly going wrong in my case, mm -hmm. and then what drugs are already approved that maybe could hit the thing that's going wrong and maybe save the patient's life. Wow. Well, and it's, it sounds like it's being creative, you know, and then like looking across yep. like drug lines or like therapy yep. lines and like not being just so hemmed in on like, this is how we've always done it, but it's like this, let's, let's, let's solve it from the problem out as opposed to like leading with the solution. Right. So that's right. I, yeah. The, oh, God. Sorry. I was just to say, just listen to what you've said there that takes back again to the criticality of that database of, of information and data that is um, collected Mm -hmm. from, you know, the many different yeah. studies and the patients and things like that, because that was something that was in, able to help you, you know, get understanding about the capability or potential capability of, of that drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah so And so it's being able to like know what options are out there, because I'm, I imagine they're probably doctors. I mean, they're, they're human, you know, they, and it, they have unbelievable amounts of information, but they may not be aware of like that there was an mTOR inhibitor, like in your case, David, that it was used for something else, but it could be repurposed, you know? So it's like just being able to like find that information and, and, and have that. And then being able to like, look at like, say your case and like, okay, so what did we learn from patient Fagenbaum and, yep. you know, how has this gone? You know what I mean? So then that leads to the development of, of therapies for other people. So. Now, you know, Francesca, you know, let's, let's talk about 
bringing this, you know, precision medicine to, you know, bringing it to life, you know, getting it out to market, you know, getting the market adoption. And what are, what are some of the more significant challenges to market adoption of a precision medicine program? And how are those challenges being met? So certainly one of the areas, and, and this is something that I found in the work that we've been doing in the cell and gene therapy over the number of years, is that the advancement of the medicines for precision medicine, they create actually new challenges for the regulatory oversight from, you know, from FDA and organizations, partly because it is also new for them. And then they're learning about this. But then, you know, with the way that the data and the information in that sharing and how that is done is something that is new. And so that's, you know, a challenge that one is put forward towards how easy will it be to get that regulatory approval to to do this? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, because again, they've, the FDA, for example, they've looked at, if you were more conventional types of diagnostics that detect um, you know, maybe a single type of disease or condition. And now, you know, they're looking at something that's more um, complex. Not that the FDA is at all opposed to this. They're supporting it. It's just that that is one thing that as new treatments and come up, then that for some period of time is going to be, you know, a challenge to that. Then, you know, some of the other things as mentioned is around the ethical, if you will, side uh, or social and legal side of the information sharing, you know, patients need to understand how that is done, why that is done, how they're going to still be protected. This is something that, again, I've learned in the, um, uh, a lot of the clinical trials where we've been involved with the different hospitals because they have patient records that are coming in and how that is controlled. And so that adds another level of control relative to data security and information and how that's done. And then I think one of the other things that, although it's not necessarily today, let's just say a manufacturing issue, there is the issue around the cost of these treatments relative to treating these different conditions. They are certainly at this stage tending to be expensive. And then when you're, I think we're still going to be going through the learning process of how are we as people going to be reimbursed, you know, from a third party, from your healthcare? What are they going to cover for this? Um, and so this is something that is new, you know, another new, you know, the facilities where these drugs would be manufactured and the studies and the testing that's being done, you know, we've certainly seen them as, as we've been involved with projects for these where, you know, they're high classified areas because of the cells that are going to then get, you know, given to, you know, back to the the patient, their new equipment in some cases for doing it. And then of course the diagnostic testing, but that's kind of more traditional, not necessarily a new challenge. Yeah. And one thing I, you know, is kind of, I did a lot of interesting challenges there, you know, and I, I thought about like the FDA approval process and kind of going back to David's case with the mTOR inhibitors, you know, and I could see, you know, like in his case, you know, he is, he's, you know, literally on death's door, you know, so, and it's like everything else has kind of failed, I think is, is a fair way to yeah. say that. And so it's kind of like a Hail Mary pass. It's like, well, 
the patient has agreed to it. Let's give it a shot. You know, what do we mm -hmm. got to lose? But that's not going to always be the case, you know, a lot of times. So it's like, then it's a matter of, well, if we get creative in how we treat this patient, it's just making sure that we're taking a, we're taking a medicine that has been approved for use A and we're advocating it for use B, you know, but then it's, you know, making sure the patient understands if there are any risks, you know, or like how navigating the labyrinth of approvals and legal ramifications I can imagine. So mm -hmm. now, David, I, you know, I have a, in the course of preparing for this podcast was a, a term was used, uh, pharmacogenics, you know, so can you explain what is pharmacogenics? I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. And, you know, how is genetics being used in the development of drug therapy? Sure. So um, pharmacogenetics is uh, where you do genetic testing of a patient to determine whether a drug is more or less likely to help to, to, um, to work and or to cause harm. So um, there's some pretty clear data that having what are called SNPs, so a single nucleotide polymorphism, which means you have a single change in your DNA mm -hmm. that doesn't make you have a disease. It just means that maybe you metabolize a drug more quickly or more slowly than other people do. So having certain SNPs will make it so that you're at more or less risk of certain adverse events. And so if you can do genetic testing and figure out based on your genetic sequence, you're more likely to have this horrible adverse event from one treatment versus another. You can then not give the patient that, that treatment that would cause a horrible adverse event and you can go on to an alternative therapy. And so that's pharmacogenetics. Unfortunately, it's really progressed rapidly on the safety side. So predicting whether someone's going to have a bad adverse event and it's progressed less rapidly on the efficacy side. So that genetic data is not as good at predicting whether one drug is going to work better than another drug. It's good at predicting whether a side effect might happen, but not as good at predicting whether it's going to be more efficacious than others. In Castleman disease, we have um, discovered a seven protein panel where we can measure in the blood seven particular proteins and get a good sense for whether you're likely to benefit or not from one particular drug. That's definitely pharmacogenetics as well. Uh, and one thing I should, I just want to bring up from our discussion as you think about precision medicine, mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about repurposing drugs to be precise in treating a particular disease. We've spoken less, though it's been alluded to, towards the sort of the traditional precision medicine approaches, and that's cell and gene therapy. So the reason that we consider cell and gene therapy to be the ultimate precision medicine is because when you create a cellular therapy, you're literally using that person's cells as a therapy. So it's like the ultimate personalization. It's not even, you know, their genetic change. It's their T cells that you're reprogramming to kill cancer. That's the ultimate personalization. Or you're going after a particular genetic change that that patient has with a gene therapy. And so though I'm a big fan and big proponent of repurposing drugs as part of personalized and precision medicine. There's also the more traditional arm of personalized precision medicine, which is cell and gene therapy. Now, Francesca, can, can pharmacogenetics technology be used to customize healthcare treatments? You know, what is the current status of these treatments? For instance, are they, are they being used in research and clinical trials and partnerships with research institutions? So there's, uh, the great news, I think, is that they can be used, you know, for the development of these treatments. Um, and what we're seeing in terms of, you know, 
certainly um, at Jacobs, you know, with these cell gene therapy facilities where we've been seeing, the, you know, we, we've been involved with these since about um, 2007. Not that that was the first start, but certainly that's where we got them. And the growth that is occurring amongst these um, facilities is tremendous. Certainly in, in um, the early day, what we were seeing is that medical schools, hospitals were the early, you know, those locations that were doing a lot of that early research, mm-hmm. be it Penn, be it um, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Massachusetts General Hospital, you know, just places all over the country and even the globe that have, you know, because of their direct involvement with patients mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the research, then this was starting to develop very early on. And, and because these medical facilities they may be staged from a capacity standpoint, if you will, to handle phase one, phase two clinical trials relative to you know, the patient numbers and quantities and being able. They then are partnering mm-hmm. with organizations, companies to then go to that next step towards the higher phase clinical or even take it through to commercial manufacturing. And, and so we're, you know, Jacobs has been involved with. Uh, like, for example, Pfizer and Vertex, Kite Pharmaceutical, you know, these are different ones that are are doing this. And so they're partner, you know, start that early partnering, bring it up forward and, and taking it through. And so it's it's certainly, I think, the what this is telling us is that uh, we're going to see a tremendous amount of ongoing growth in this area. And whether it is for a... Um, you know, the disease where maybe there's just a small number of patients mm-hmm. that have this disease, be it in the U.S. or globally, but they're still, uh, companies are still uh, taking the opportunity to target and find um, those treatments. And then, you know, with some of the different cancers that, you know, are to much larger patient populations. Mm-hmm. Now, David, uh, Francesca mentioned Penn you know, when she was talking about like research facilities and like where phase one and phase two and things like that, you know, are taking place. Can you talk a little bit about what projects are being tested and implemented in labs and at places like the Penn Center for Precision Medicine? Yeah, uh, really, um, it's the whole gamut. Um, Here at Penn, there's um, incredible gene therapy going on um, that was pioneered by Jim Wilson, who uh, in many ways is considered sort of the one of the founding leaders of the gene therapy field. There's uh, cellular immunotherapies being pioneered by Carl June, who also is considered sort of the, the pioneering founder of the cellular immunotherapy field. Um, there are groups like ours here uh, that I lead, like the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory, where we probe disease biology on a molecular level, and then we look for drugs that can be repurposed in a very precise way, certainly in line with precision medicine. And there's the Penn Center for Precision Medicine, led by David Roth, where he really uh, stimulates and accelerates precision medicine research all around campus, um, across basically every domain, um, from psychiatry to neurosurgery. So there's a lot of really exciting work being done on campus. And um, it really is just, I think, a general trend that's been happening over the last decade. And that's to move from, okay, you have a disease, so we're going to give you a drug. And if that drug doesn't work, we'll give you the next drug, the next drug to the world we're in right now, which is 
okay, you have a disease and we understand your particular disease has increased expression of this thing or decreased expression of that thing, whatever may be meaningful for your disease. So we now can put your disease in context for you, the patient. Mm-hmm. And we can say, therefore, I think you're going to do better on this drug than that drug. Um, but if this drug doesn't work, um, we all, we think that this would be the next one in line. And so you can start to predict who's likely to benefit from one drug or another drug. Mm-hmm. And you can maybe even say, and maybe there's a drug C that isn't even used for your disease, but based on what we've seen in the laboratory, we think the drug C could work really, really well. And so that's really where we're moving forward to as a, as a field. And certainly a lot of that work's happening here at Penn. Hmm. Francesca, you know, I think some of like what, what we're looking at is like expanding on this work, like that David's talking about, you know, the idea of precision medicine and, and really making it more market feasible, you know, so how is Jacobs supporting clients in the design and startup of personalized medicine facilities? Can you speak some examples, like how we're- Sure. So um, as I said, we we started out in the earlier days, you know, in in the early part of this with the clinical, you know, phase one, phase two clinical facilities, like at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, um, for example, and, and they, and, and, so in that project, for example, our leadership role was for regulatory programming of that facility and then providing them the different kinds of information in terms of what's the quality of the environment to protect the uh, products being made, mm-hmm. uh, say what segregation is necessary between the different types and um, how many stations can we have in a common space for multiple, you know, to support multiple patients, things like that. And then it expanded from there into process, assess, you know, review, being able to, what is the right type of equipment? Because a number of these, especially in the case of the cell therapy processing, it's just different equipment mm-hmm. in the way that you do the process. Gene therapy is much more similar to some of the traditional therapeutic manufacturing that we've done over the years. It's just that um, for cell therapy, the equipment is different. And so from a process standpoint, we've come in and looked at this mm-hmm. and been able to do it. And, and then architecturally, and, and then the other thing. So we are now doing full facility design and looking at the definition of the process flows through the facility and all the different steps of, of process manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And as I say, what are the GMP aspects or regulatory compliance requirements and even biosafety, because as we're dealing in the cases with human cells, and in some cases they're attaching um, transfecting with a viral vector to this or bacteria. So that then that, brings another application relative to the design of the manufacturing space and carrying it through. But Jacob, we've done now more than 30 of these types of projects for um, cell and gene therapy at the clinical mostly and now into the commercial manufacturing. Hmm. And then, so David, my last question is for you. And, uh, you know, I, I, a theme, I think, for our discussion today is kind of thinking creatively, you know, and, and kind of approaching approaching problems kind of in a new light. And, you know, one way that we do that, and I think we're seeing with like increasing, we're, as a society, we're increasingly embracing is, is neurodiversity and embracing people who have neurodiverse trends. I know um, we're creating greater opportunities for people to, um, you know, with neurodiversity to help, you know, solve these, these great challenges. Now, 
in reading your book, I understand that you have some neurodiversity uh, on uh, as part of your life experience, in your case, hyper-focus. Can you speak to the role it played in, in your own chase for the cure? Sure. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, everything, um, in moderation is good. And, in uh, you know, too much is, is not so good. And, and focus is one of those things where, um, yeah, during, as a, as a young child, I, I learned that, um, I tend to hyper-focus on things, uh, which means that I can do something for 18 or 20 hours straight and not take a break or do anything else. And, uh, it, you know, the time flies when you're having fun and, uh, that works really well when you're a laboratory scientist and you have, you know, work in front of you. It doesn't work as well when um, you need to, you know, stop doing those things to do other things. And so mm-hmm. hyper-focus can be a, a really, a real gift, um, but it can also um, be a bit of a curse, right? Because you have a hard time shifting from from one, one focus area to another. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think that without... Um, without that level of focus that I had as I was searching for a drug that could save my life, I don't know if I would have found one, but now that the task is to go from chasing my cure to chasing other cures. And so over the last eight and a half years that I've been in remission, we've now given the same drug that I'm on to many other Castleman's patients. We've actually identified and or pushed forward nine other drugs for Castleman's patients, patients that aren't benefiting from the drug that helps me. And, um, so yeah, we're we're finding drugs for every Castleman's patient. That's the mission we're on. And then we're actually getting ready to launch another nonprofit organization this month, um, along with President Clinton, uh, that's focused on drug repurposing more generally. So can we figure out all uses for all drugs um, and then you perform clinical trials to prove whether those drugs actually work or don't work? And so really it's about shifting from this um, myopic focus on finding a drug that could save my life to then saying, let's apply the same process and the same focus um, to other Castleman's patients and then now more broadly um, to patients with any disease and, and, and potentially any drug. Mm. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, David and Francesca, I want to thank you both so much for your time today. Uh, very fascinating topic, you know, precision medicine. Uh, very interesting to see the trajectory of like where healthcare is going in this regard. So I want to thank you both for sharing your time and your expertise with us. 